You're listening to the Mayor Greg Fisher Podcast. Consider this. What does it take for a community to recover from a big traumatic event, a flood? What about long-term traumas like the practice of redlining? In this episode, the mayor speaks with Eric Friedlander, the city's chief of resilience and community services. He's leading the city's efforts to develop a resilience strategy so that Louisville is better prepared for the future. Eric is also Louisville Metro's point person for the many efforts to address one of the city's big challenges, homelessness. Let's listen in. I'm really excited to be joined by Eric Friedlander today. Eric is the chief of the Office for Resilience and Community Services here in Louisville. So, Eric, why don't we start by you explaining to us what Resilient Louisville is all about? Well, sure. Thank you. Uh, Good to be here today. Resilient Louisville actually comes from 100 Resilient Cities. This is a group that's funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. They were looking across the world and they saw that there was this rapid urbanization, rapid globalization, and a need to respond to climate change. And when you look across the globe, Louisville is one of 100 resilient cities in the world. That's not North America, that's not uh, you know, just the US, but it's across the world. And when you look at those cities, most of them end up being on the coastlines. So ocean level rise, uh, climate change is, is a tremendous and a immediate impact. We, while we like to think of the Ohio River as a large body of water, which it is, it isn't an ocean. Uh, and so we've looked at resilience and we've probably had uh, engaged about 3,000 folks over about the past year uh, in workshops, in focus groups, through surveys. And actually, you say it as well as I do, it much better actually, in that what we're doing in looking at Louisville resilience is we're looking at human resilience. What's come across all the engagements that we've had, as a city, we're concerned about equity. That's from the Junior League to our surveys. All across the board, that issue of equity and the disparities that we see in Louisville keeps coming back and coming up. We're very proud of our cultures and art. Uh, We really resonate with your compassion message. So we're going to be looking at how we explore some of the issues that we're looking at through the lens of compassion and equity. So these are things that have come back to us uh, and things that we've been working on. We've got a work group now that meets every other Monday at the public library. About 60 to 80 people every other Monday for the past couple of months have been coming together to look at and how we define resilience for Louisville. It's been a tremendous, tremendous outpouring of interest from the community and that kind of sticking with it through a long process. Yes, so that's a great group of folks. What kind of uh, key points are you arising out of these meetings? Well, what's been interesting is we've been very interested in looking at compassion and compassion as it relates to trust. How do we work on the whole concept of the culture of compassion that we are looking at as an aspirational goal in Louisville, right? We don't always get there. Um, some folks say, oh, well, what is, is that what a compassionate city does? But the thing that's neat about that, that means people are bought into the goal. So we're looking at how we work on compassion and build trust in communities. So looking kind of at a strength for us and how we build on some things about, about trust. That's a very basic concept for community. So we define compassion in our city as respect for each and every citizen so their full human potential is thriving, flourishing. Thomas Merton would have said people shining like the sun. So what was Rockefeller's reaction when we 
took that notion to them. I know our, in the previous cohorts, they've been working on climate change, environmental resiliency. We said we would like to add the human resiliency to that as well. What was the kind of, what, how'd that conversation go down? What's interesting is over the past year or so, uh, they really had been focusing on the sustainability and climate change, but what they found out through the engagements with other cities, uh, I, can, I think this is obvious, I, I, that's one, my one skill, my firm grasp of the obvious, right? But what they found is when cities have that shock, uh, that flood, that tornado, uh, the tsunami, the populations that are impacted the most are those populations that are most vulnerable. So if, you, if you're not looking through an equity lens or a compassion lens, what you're not addressing is that most vulnerable population, which is where your city breaks, yeah. right? That's where we break in, in, in the urban context. So how do we work together to strengthen our most vulnerable populations? The, one of the other areas that we're looking at, and, and you know this through uh, Office of Safe and Healthy Neighborhood and a lot of different initiatives we have going on. We just got the SAMHSA grant. We're looking at how do we build resilience to trauma, right? Trauma is something that is certainly within the 100 resilient cities realm, that shock, that mm -hmm. trauma that occurs. But in Louisville, we're also talking about institutional trauma, systemic trauma, those things that have happened through redlining, through urban renewal. That's trauma and ongoing trauma. So how do we address that and come to terms with that and start to heal from that as a community. What are those things that we can put in place, those actions that we can put in place or support those actions that we're already doing to address trauma? Those are two of the four discovery areas that we're looking at. And I think those are the areas that I'm most excited about. You don't really see that other cities trying to tackle these kinds of issues. I, I think of trauma as sort of root cause of root cause, right? So. These are things that we've got a community of folks together that are trying to work on. The other, the other two discovery areas are, are more traditional. They are more about equitable economic development and wealth building through an equity lens. Uh, and the last one is this built and natural environment as it relates to health and well-being. That's where the environment comes in with UofL. Ted Smith is one of my co-chairs. So this fits, really, fits in really well with what UofL has been looking at in terms of linking that environmental piece to the health and well-being piece. Uh, and, and they, again, say it better than I do, but certainly we know a lot more about the genome than we know about that impact then on our health just by going to a park, right? We've had some really interesting studies done um, around asthma, uh, Air Louisville, where, we, where we've really been able to quantify the value and the protective value of trees and green space uh, and its impact on overall health. Yeah, looking forward to, uh, to learn more about that. The Green Heart Project, of course, is the next major project rolling out of the Center for Enviromics. We'll have Ted Smith on as one of our future guests, perhaps with Dr. Botnagar. And to see this is a groundbreaking new area that's centered right here in the, our city of Louisville, so it could have great impact, not just on quality of living, but economic prospects that can come out of the whole concept of the envirome. Mm -hmm. So just briefly, when we think about more traditional resilience areas in terms of flooding and activities like that, what are some of the key points that have come out of the work group relative to resilience in that fashion? What we're looking at is the importance, and, and other cities are struggling just as we are. Uh, how do you pay for infrastructure? How do you get the community buy-in? 
around the importance of things like sewers, right? We, we've got some, some significant pushback and uh, discussion around how we work with our, our ancient sewer system. So When you say ancient, how, how old are we talking about here? I like the Civil War. So it's been depreciated. It, uh, fully depreciated <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but people are kind of blown away when they say, look, these are the same sewers that were built in the mid-1860s, 1870s, and that's why you see these collapses taking place in, in our city. We need to modernize our infrastructure. Absolutely. And they did a great job when they built them 150 years ago. Look how long they've lasted. Yeah. But we have to take some stewardship now. And the other piece, that, as it relates to climate change, is we're going to see more significant rainfall here. Mm-hmm. We're going to see inland flooding, as they call it. So we have to work more and better together on our green infrastructure and our uh, having more uh, permeable pavement and how we look at things like that. How do we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions? These are things that uh, Office of Sustainability has been working on. But w- we need to continue that work and, and step that up for how we as a city, as individuals, can have an impact on our environment. I want to really uh, tap my head or nod my head to the Rockefeller Foundation for their flexibility when it came to looking at resilience through a human lens here. You know, great foundations are those that are nimble and agile when it comes to doing what's best for the grant for the cities they're in. So we don't always see that. So just want to say it's been a great pleasure to, to work with. And we're really proud to be one of the 100 resilient cities. It's it's an honor. And I think when I say to folks, we're one of 100 in the world, and that's it, that's the kind of honor that, that uh, being from Louisville makes me proud to be from Louisville. Let's switch over to an issue that's a real challenge for the whole country right now, and that's homelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in Louisville are having our own challenges. When you go to California, a quarter of the world of the country's homeless population is there. You've got cities with over 10,000 homeless people. Can you kind of sketch out what our homelessness challenge in Louisville looks like? So in Louisville, I mean, you can go drive down the streets and see that that there are issues with homelessness in Louisville. We have a variety of shelters uh, all across the city, several hundred beds for folks, either permanent housing or emergency shelter. Uh, But we also have folks who live on the streets and in encampments. And about a year ago, we started our encampment task force. And when you look at other cities, these other cities have really the same issues we do. And so we begin to talk, I've talked with other cities, I've talked with Los Angeles and Nashville and Boston and other, lots of other cities to try to get what they're trying to do. We have a good system in Louisville. We have a, a relatively good infrastructure. When you look at best practices, we've got most of them in place. There are pieces that we don't have. We don't have a low barrier shelter. You've heard a lot about that recently. We don't have one. And what do you mean by a low barrier? And I hear no barrier, too. Why don't you explain what those are? The difference is when you go into a shelter in Louisville now, if somebody wants to go into shelter, they basically can't have any sort of uh, active substance use. They can't be high. That's just the quickest way to say that. Um, It's hard sometimes for people, if you have partners um, or if you have a pet, to find any place to go. If you're worried about losing your possessions Oftentimes, you can't take those into shelter. So a low-barrier shelter means you get to go in no matter what. And some of the some folks on the street have been banned out of shelters uh, because of violent 
behavior or just repeated violation of rules, staying too long, not getting there in time. So a low barrier shelter just means you can come in no matter what. Uh, and, and when you think about that, you have to staff that more professionally than you do other shelters, right? This means you've got folks who are uh, more volatile. And so you need to have strong behavioral health interventions uh, available. You need to have somebody there who is going to be watching and making sure and de-escalating, trained in de-escalation. So these are, these are complicated issues. Uh, I, I, I would love to say we can wave a magic wand and have a low barrier shelter. I was in Boston last week and they lost their low barrier shelter. It's not, it is a very difficult model to put in place and make it sustainable. Lost it because of difficulty, funding, getting the funding, adequate mental health resources there? All of the above. Yeah. And they're not sure how they can start one. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're not alone in not having one, but, but what we do have, uh, the living room, is a fantastic addition to the city of Louisville. Being able to take folks who are having behavioral health crisis and, and, and having some place where they can see professionals, that's had a tremendous impact. Uh, LMPD can take people to the living room here for center stone, uh, as well as the downtown ambassadors now in the last month have been able to start to do that. We have great day shelters. We have a good coordination of care with uh, the homeless coalition. There are lots of providers out there. And the thing that makes Louisville, I think, uh, really kind of echoes the compassion piece. We have folks, I call them the street outreach, and that was, that's what they call themselves, uh, the folks like Fed with Faith, Forgotten Louisville, Exit Zero. Um, there's now a Southeast Angels group. Uh, these groups actually go out, see people on the street, make sure that they're fed, make sure that they have clothing, make sure they have blankets, and basically in cold weather, make sure that they're alive. So these folks, and the way that they have described this to me, and and anybody who's worked with somebody who has substance abuse issues knows they're not ready until they're ready to go in. The way these folks describe their services to me, it is to make sure that when somebody's ready to make that decision, to make that decision to drop the substance abuse, to get some help and services, to finally have enough trust or recover from trauma enough or make a relationship enough that they can go into services, they're keeping them alive until they can do that. And that's really a special thing that we do in Louisville. And it's, it's all done through community donations and contributions. And it is, I think, a tremendous service and makes us, makes us a compassionate city. Well, and our Coalition for the Homeless here is frequently looked at around the country as a real unique best practice for it. So it's just a, such a difficult area to work in. We've had some success. Uh, we were, I believe, the second city in the country to end homelessness amongst veterans. We still have housing vouchers for veterans that are homeless. So if anybody knows anyone in that category, please contact us so we can get our veterans housing. Uh, we did a really great job with the goal to reduce youth homelessness in our community. Uh, we exceeded the goal of 100 youth, and for that, we were rewarded about a, a year or so later with a $3.4 million grant from the federal government to do further work in that area. So uh, there's a lot to be optimistic about, but it pulls at your heartstrings when you see a homeless person. And I can tell you the feedback I get is kind of twofold. One is questions of how we can do more, and then some other people, frankly, just don't want to see it. They mm-hmm. want it to go away, and this is a super 
complex social problem for us. Why does it seem like we're seeing more homeless people? I mean, what's the, res what's the system that's leading to this? So many pieces that fit into it, right? There's, there's the opiate uh, addiction issue. There's the economic issue, right? We actually have a pretty high, unfortunately, a pretty high eviction rate in Louisville. Um, there is, can we make a living wage, right? And uh, do we have affordable housing? We've got an affordable housing trust fund. That's a long play. That's not something that's going to have an impact within the next two or three months. Uh, that's something that has an impact over time. That's one of the best practices that we're doing. I'll, I'll give you another example of a best practice that not many folks know about. Uh, collaboration between community services and Kentuckiana Works and some of the shelters. We will go in with a case manager, start to work with somebody who's in a shelter, in a day shelter, and try to get them into employment. We've had really good success in going from shelters to work. It's called the Shelter Works Program. Right. And we've had, we've had that's, a, that's a brand new initiative, uh, probably within the last six months or so. And I think once we scale that up a little bit more, it's going to be a best practice for the nation. I think another factor in there is the availability of mental health beds. Oh, yeah. I guess at the peak of our country, we had about 600,000 beds open. Now, some of those were institutionalized beds. And so that's the way the country used to deal with people with severe mental health problems that didn't have a home or family to go to was to lock them away. And then changes came in law that allowed people to not be in institutions like that. But our, I think our mental health beds now are in the neighborhood of 50,000 in the country. So when you think about that kind of major decrease and the lack of funding that's gone to helping people with severe mental health problems, that certainly has been a major contributor uh, to the homelessness problem all over our country as well. Absolutely. And, and the funding didn't follow when in the 60s and 70s these institutions were closed. And and, and I don't love institutions. Um, I think when you live in an institution, you learn to live in an institution and not in community. But if you're going to close institutions, you have to fund the community services to support folks. And, and folks with severe and persistent mental illness they can recover and, and, and lead relatively normal lives, but it takes a lot of community support, a lot of behavioral health support and services, jobs, training and support and services. And that's not cheap, but it, it is possible. And so when you have cut, and what we've done is cut these beds and the funding for these beds and not really replaced it with anything. And we see the problem on our streets. And we see the problem all over on our America. Streets. That's right. So when people think about this or complain about it, I'd like for them to think about what's the root cause here, basically mm -hmm. this defunding of so many of these services that we have. Uh, talk a little bit about the Homeless Encampment Task Force. That was a big area of focus uh, for a couple different reasons. So we brought together, uh, under your guidance, uh, a Homeless Encampment Task Force. And that task force includes uh, homeless providers, some folks who are form formerly homeless, uh, some service providers, some street outreach folks, uh, Louisville Metro agencies. And we started to try to address how we work with folks in encampments uh, what's the best way to work together? Uh, we have an internal metro group that really looks at how do we go out and clean and look at camps and uh, how do we work together to make sure that LMPD, solid waste management, community services, codes and regs are all on the same page. And, and we've been working on that, and, and I think we, we do a better job with that in terms of coordination. There's another group 
that I think is the most exciting group that came out of uh, the encampment task force, and that is that the case managers for folks who are homeless, uh, and the coalition brings these folks together, and street outreach people, and community services come together once a month and talk about who's most vulnerable on the street and begin to try to get them into services. So it gets very specific. We all sign confidentiality agreements, but to the point of, well, you need a female case manager for this person because they won't respond to a male. As a matter of fact, you can't approach that person directly. You need to call her friend in Wisconsin who will get you to talk. And, and actually, that works. The street outreach people have the relationships with people that have been able to tell the case managers how to get them engaged and involved and get them into services. And that has worked. And we've got people into services that the case managers thought were impossible cases. Mm. And so that group that meets has had a tremendous impact. When you hear advocates uh, who are impatient with our responses, right? Uh, but they always say the communication is better, and it is. And, and that's how we start to work on issues together. Best practices group, we're looking at other cities. Uh, you, in the last budget, there was funding for a study around how do we do low barrier shelters in a way that's going to be sustainable. Um, the coalition has that uh, RFP out. There's some folks who have responded to it. Uh, hopefully we'll have the study going here within the next month. Uh, but that, how do you make that model sustainable over time? What's the cost? How's, how does it need to be funded? Those are the things that we're looking at uh, with the encampment task force. And issues come up around storage of personal items, and that's something that we are actively working on. And hopefully we'll have some solutions for the community within the next couple of months. You mentioned panhandling a, a moment mm -hmm. ago. There's been a significant increase in panhandling all over the country. And so what's going on here, and why, why can't something be done about that? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> and, and what's happened is, actually, there's a Supreme Court case out now. Uh, Kentucky Supreme Court, essentially panhandling, we use that term, is a part of protected free speech. Uh, so there's really, there's no enforcement that we can take in Louisville uh, relative to panhandling because essentially asking somebody for money is a part of free speech. So unless there's an illegal act associated with that, there's really not anything we can do relative to that type of enforcement. But what we can do, and what I hope we're able to do, is start to offer folks jobs. That's part of, the, that's right. part of what we've been in some discussions around with Councilman Yates uh, about how do we make sure that if we see folks who are on the street that we can offer them some potential for employment, some potential for services, so that we can give them an alternative to, to standing on our street corners. Yeah, I know it's painful for everybody, but uh, from, they're perfectly legal, within their legal rights to be able to do all that. People don't have to give them money, and then we provide ways for people, if they're concerned with homeless, to be able to contribute that way. Right. What I do is, uh, in my car, I have a case of water. So when somebody stops, I'm at the end of an exit ramp and somebody's asking me for money, I'll give them a couple of bottles of water. And usually that's really, uh, pe people are thankful for that. I'm getting ready to switch over. We're getting into winter. I'm getting ready to switch over to socks and gloves and hats. Uh, but that is something that will always be welcome. So if you feel like you want to do something, I would suggest giving to any of those street outreach organizations or the Coalition for the Homeless or, 
or, or any of the homeless providers across the city, that's a way you can have a broader impact with your money. But if you want to give something, uh, a small denomination uh, uh, restaurant card, uh, like I say, socks, hats, uh, gloves, water, uh, granola bar, uh, those are all things that don't take up much space and you can have in your car. And if you really, if you want to give something, that's something that will actually be helpful. Why not cash? Well, in my mind, and actually in talking with folks, if you give somebody cash, you may be buying them their last fix. So you may not actually be helping them at all. So I, I shy away from giving cash. I, I don't think it's the right thing to do. Well, uh, in closing out here, I want to thank you for your thoughts here today and the hard, difficult work that you do every day. You've got a esteemed resume in the field of social services, and the city of Louisville is lucky to have you helping out with the city. So thank you for that. Thank you. And I often hear people saying, how can I help? How can I get involved? And I guess the best way to do that is to send them to the web where they can go to lewhomeless.org slash how can you help? And you'll see a couple of different ways on there how people can step up. But in the meantime, I know we're going to keep working hard on it from this office, and we ask everybody's uh, help to make this a more equitable city for everybody. So, Eric Friedlander, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Mayor Fisher speaking with Eric Friedlander, the city's chief of resilience and community services. You can subscribe to the Mayor Greg Fisher podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. And you can keep up with the mayor, he's in constant motion, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our producer is Joe Lord. I'm Graham Shelby. Thank you for listening to the Mayor Greg Fisher Podcast.